set my phone. Yes, okay. Ladies and gentlemen, we are about ready to start class. So if you are here for class and haven't put on a name tag, um, I would invite you to do that over there. And at the end of class, try to find someone you don't know to greet them. Uh, we are listening to some music uh, that some people have already identified. So they get extra credit for that. Uh, does anybody else know what it is? Yes, John. The first of those, yes. Yes, it's Gustav Holtz, The Planets, uh, and this is Jupiter, which is also uh, known very frequently as a chem tune called Thaxted, uh, which is basically lifted right out of the planets uh, and is used as a chem tune. So let me turn that off and we will start. Okay, there we are. So let me start us off with a word of prayer, and we will jump in, and hopefully I will not squeak too much on this mic. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of this time together tonight. We pray that you would bless our time together, that you would help us to put aside those things that have been on our minds during the day, and to focus in on what you have for us this evening. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to your truth and that through these books and through the gift of C.S. Lewis's writing, you would help us to grow more and more into the image of your Son. For we pray this in his most holy name. Amen. So, uh, what we're going to do tonight is make a little transition as we move out of the abolition of man and start into that hideous strength, which is the fictional uh, outworking of all of that. So, as we get ready to jump into that, let's say together our scripture verse. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So I'm going to see if I can turn this down just a little. Be right back. We'll see if that's better. All right, we'll see if that's better. 
we can be grateful that we're still young enough that we can hear high-pitched noises. <laughs> okay, so just a word of welcome for anyone that's new, either in person or on the live stream tonight. We continue to get new folks. And just a word about how to approach this, particularly as we start this new book. Some of you may have seen the book, That Hideous Strength, and been somewhat daunted by the fact that it's much longer than The Abolition of Man. Uh, if you are too daunted by it, you can stay on the beach, which means you just show up when you feel like it. You don't read. You just get by osmosis what you get. If that's all you want to do, I'm perfectly happy with that and delighted to have you. Or you can snorkel. You can read the parts that you find interesting and skip the rest. Or you can scuba dive, which means you go down the rabbit hole and read all the handouts and the links and everything else. Uh, if you are on the live stream and you're not on our email list, uh, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and shoot me an email and I'll get you added to the list so that you get the handouts and outlines and all of that. So we're not going to worry about how to read The Abolition of Man anymore because we finished The Abolition of Man. We will refer back to it. I am taking it on faith that you have all read it now at this point, unless you're on the beach, in which case you may not have ever even owned a copy, which is all good. Uh, but what we're going to do now is we're going to be establishing a framework for appreciating that hideous strength and how it relates to the abolition of man and to a number of other important themes. And we will continue looking at practices of hope and wisdom that are a response to what we find in Lewis's writing. So we're going to do a very quick review here. Um, so we talked about how did Lewis come to write these books, and we talked about the fact that he had that long journey from atheism to Christianity, that for those of you who saw the movie, uh, that was depicted very well. Uh, and so Lewis understood all the arguments for atheism because he had spouted them off himself to lots of people. So it really presented uh, him as the ideal person to be able to write these books to try to expose the weaknesses of that point of view. We talked a lot about how Lewis was desperately worried about the state of education, and he went back to the whole idea of what liberal arts originally meant, went back to St. Augustine, uh, the whole idea of rightly ordered loves. We talked about universities and how wildly they have veered off of their original missions. And one of the things that's interesting that some of you might have seen in the news this week is there are a whole bunch of academic superstars who have all left their uh, institutions that have gone off the rails, and they are forming a new university in Texas. And these people are brilliant academicians. Um, the guy that's leading the charge is the former president of St. John's Book College in Annapolis, which is a very famous classical school that even that has started going off the rails. Uh, but it's a very hopeful development. Um, we also talked about philosophy and how philosophy used to be the reason you went to school to learn about the meaning of life. What does it mean to live with virtue and purpose? And that has just gone. Uh, school, college, university is largely vocational now. It's all about economics and getting a job. So Lewis was very disturbed by these trends that he identified back in the 1940s. And he started Abolition of Man with this very provocative quote um, from Puer Nobis Nascator, the old uh, Christmas carol that says, so he sent the word to slay and slew the little children. And 
it's not an accident. Lewis does not want to use hyperbole a lot, but this is a pretty <laughs> throwing down the gauntlet kind of quotation. And basically what he's saying is that if left unchecked, what was going on in the educational system, the seeds of that were going to flower in such a way that it would destroy Western and Christian civilization as we know it through undermining the concept of objective value. So we talked about Men Without Chess, that first book, um, starting with that beautiful image of the waterfall. And the chief point out of that first chapter is that we have a wonderful heritage of what is good and true and beautiful. And that as we are bringing children into the world, the job of the older generation is to train them to appreciate what is good, true, and beautiful. And that when we stop doing that, and we start saying there's no difference between good and bad, beautiful and ugly, true and false, we create a world of chaos. Uh, We talked about uh, the philosophers who uh, were showing this sort of thing, Nietzsche, uh, sort of the father of that school of nihilism, but then Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, who are arguably the most influential academic philosophers of the past hundred years. And they are as if somebody had read Lewis's writing and created the poster child of what he predicted would happen. It's all right there in Lewis. And we talked about um, chapter two in Abolition of Man, that people who say they want to just get rid of values and have it be neutral, that that's actually a lie. It's just a decision about whose values are going to be adopted. And Lewis says that the Tao, this inheritance, natural law, um, the law of human behavior, uh, whatever you want to call it, natural revelation, all of those things, that these things are not one among a series of possible systems of value. They're the sole source of all value judgments. And if you reject it, if you reject that heritage, then you reject all value. And the result of that is no values at all. And he says that will result in this little uh, italicized thing, which, as Lewis says, the position of people that believe there's no value. Let us regard all ideas of what we ought to do simply as an interesting psychological survival. Let us step right out of all that and start doing what we like. Let us decide for ourselves what man is to be and make him into that not on any ground of imagined value, but because we want him to be such. Having mastered our environment, let us now master ourselves and choose our own destiny. That is pretty chilling. So in the third chapter, Lewis gives kind of his prognosis about what's going to happen. And he says that what we call man's power over nature, all those things we celebrate as advances, in reality, are a power exercised by some men over others with nature as its instrument. The power of man to make himself what he pleases means the power of some men to make other men what they please. And he talks about how new education will be part of this, that once you are free from the idea that there's any kind of objective value, you can just decide what you want people to believe and start teaching it to them, and just tell them there's no such thing as truth, but this is what we think you need to know, and they will produce an artificial doubt. And he says, the final frontier 
is the step over into the abyss. And he says what happens in that is that you keep explaining away things and saying we don't believe that, that's not true, Um, we need to be more enlightened, we need to embrace this new philosophy, and eventually you have deconstructed the entire world. And he talks about how the point of seeing through something is to see something through it. And he uses this example of the window. He says it's good that a window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque and solid. So you can look through the window and see the garden or the street or the house. But what if you saw through the garden and the street and the house there was just a mirage? There's nothing left. A wholly transparent world is an invisible world. So the three main themes, the first one, the importance of objective values, the poison of subjectivism, saying there's no such thing as right and wrong, but it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. Secondly, the natural law is the sole source of all value judgments, and then man's control of nature is really a means for some men, who Lewis calls conditioners, to control other men using nature as their instrument. So that's kind of where we left off. And I want us to just reflect a little bit on the importance of this book. Lewis said it was almost his favorite among his books, which is quite a statement, because Lewis wrote a lot of stuff, and a lot of it won major awards, not just uh, popularity awards or awards for good fiction, but academic awards and everything else. But he says that this was really important, but he felt like it had been largely ignored during his lifetime. But one of the interesting things is that ever since Lewis's death, this book has become more and more and more and more important. We talked about how it's so interesting that the Colson Center, one of the top ministries for um, a robust intellectual Christian faith, chose this as what they say is the most important book that Christians could be reading right now to the extent that they would be willing to give it away to people for a contribution of any amount of money. That's pretty astounding. The other thing that's interesting is all sorts of people who are not Christians have praised this book because they say Lewis's reasoning is absolutely correct. And any person who, even if they're not Christian, if they understand the idea of value or of beauty, they understand Lewis's defense of this is really important. Michael Ward says in uh, his book, After Humanity, which is over on the table, and you should order if you don't have it, um, he says, arguing that the moral law is a premise is so important. It's not a conclusion. We have to accept the moral law as a given, and we must argue from it. It's an objective reality we didn't make up. We must submit to it. We must surrender to it and grow up within it. It's like a trellis with which you would train a climbing tree. And just imagine what happens to a climbing vine when it has no trellis. You know, it just turns into this impenetrable mass. So Lewis says, if, um, or rather Ward says about Lewis, if you take the opposite view, that we create moral law according to our own subjective preferences, you can do whatever you like, because there's nothing that's objectively real in the moral world. No, it's just whatever you happen to choose. And that is what we see going on right now in our culture. Those of you who remember, how many of you saw the Hunger Game movies? You remember the Hunger Games movies? Well, it was very interesting because when those came out, the people that lived in the capital 
Um, they looked really outlandish. It was like almost like people from another planet. But if you go back and watch that now, it doesn't even seem weird because we have moved so far just in the time period since those things came out. So Ward continues, happiness consists in conforming oneself to reality, the givenness of God's creation, not twisting reality to suit your own convenience or your own desires. The common modern-day phrase, speaking my truth, connects very precisely with this prophecy that Lewis is making, that we'll all just determine reality according to our own particular perspective, which leads to moral anarchy and therefore to a post-truth world. So Lewis was so concerned about these themes and how important they were that he did something really unusual for him. He didn't do this sort of thing, typically, but he decided to portray these themes in the form of a story for the last volume in the Ransom Trilogy, which he entitles That Hideous Strength. And the title of that book comes from a poem by Sir David Lindsay in 1555. I'm sure you've all read that. Um, called And Dialogue. It's not even in uh, what we think of as modern English. So it's a little bit of a hard read. But he has this line describing the biblical Tower of Babel. And he says, The shadow of that hideous strength, six miles and more it is of length. And the idea is the Tower of Babel was man's rebellion against God. Man deciding that he was in charge that he didn't need God, that he could make things on his own that were better than what God made, and he could take the reins of his own life. And, of course, that didn't end well. Uh, But Lewis, in the preface to that hideous strength, says this is a tall story, which most commentators think he's making that pun quite deliberately, about devilry. Now, remember, Lewis is an academic at Oxford. He's talking about devilry. That is shocking. He says, this is a tall tale about devilry, though it has behind it a serious point, which I've tried to make in my abolition of man. So it's interesting because the subtitle of that hideous strength is a modern fairy tale for grown-ups. A modern fairy tale for grown-ups. And he breathes life into the same ideas that we see in the abolition of man, where he describes this aggressive vision of the scientific group called the NICE. What a great name. How could you be against the NICE? And this is something we see all over the place in our culture. These groups call themselves things where if you say you're against that, you must obviously be a horrible person. So how could you be against the NICE? I mean, they're so nice. Uh, But the NICE stands for the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments. And just wait until we get into that. And he attributes the management of the NICE to demons. Now, that is a pretty provocative thesis. So uh, what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to try to take you through the first two books um, in about 20 minutes. So we'll see how that goes. Um, Lewis says in his preface that you can read that hideous strength as a standalone, and you can. And it works. I actually read that hideous strength back when I was a teenager before I read the other two, um, and I loved it. But I will tell you, it is much richer 
if you read the other ones as well, even if you go back and read them later. And the interesting thing about this, you might remember long ago, back in that Philadelphia Alley room on the first night that we had class when it was about 90 degrees and there was no air to breathe in the room, um, that we talked about um, the origin of this story. Lewis was not a science fiction writer, uh, but he and Tolkien made a wager about what kind of stories to write that could express some theological truth that the culture might respond to in a fictional form. And so they tossed a coin, and Lewis got the space travel story. And that's the genesis of this. So the first story is called Out of the Silent Planet. And the hero, the protagonist, is Dr. Elwyn Ransom. Now, if you are a Lord of the Rings fan, um, you would know that Elwyn um, is a name that shows up there as well um, that means elf friend. And there are lots of little puns going on here because Dr. Elwyn Ransom, Ransom, you might remember Mark chapter 10, Jesus in one of his most famous teachings says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And guess what else Dr. Ransom has? He has a wounded heel. Oh, where have we heard about that? If you don't know, wait for Lessons and Carols, because it will be in the lessons at Lessons and Carols. So Dr. Elwyn Ransom. Um, does anyone remember what Dr. Elwyn Ransom's uh, academic field was? Yes. Oh, that is so good, Cynthia. Philology. That is a really fun word to say. Say that with me. Philology. Um, philology is a little-known field today. It is the story of words and how words acquire their meanings. It is the nerdiest of the nerdy. Uh, and it is what Tolkien's doctorate was in and what Tolkien was a professor of. Um, you might remember Tolkien's first job was working for the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, on the O section. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that at a cocktail party? What do you do? I work on the O's. <laughs> but uh, Tolkien was uh, elf-like in appearance, according to Lewis. And so this character is modeled somewhat on Tolkien. He's a philologist like Tolkien, uh, and he's an elf friend like Tolkien. So anyway, um, Lewis gives Tolkien the ultimate insult for an Oxford man and makes him a Cambridge Don. So he's a Cambridge Don, that means a professor, on holiday. And while he's on holiday, having a nice walking holiday, one of those British things that Lewis loved to do where you walk on these paths and put up at pubs along the way, he's kidnapped by this physicist, Weston, and his partner, Divine. Now, there's another little pun there with Divine. A sleazy businessman. And they take him and they send him to Mars in a spaceship. And Mars is called Malacandra uh, in this other language that we're going to get to in a minute. And poor Ransom overhears these people saying that they have kidnapped him because they're going to make him a human sacrifice to aliens. Well, that sounds great. 
So he's taken to be a human sacrifice to these aliens. And once he gets on Mars, he manages to escape. He hides in a Martian village and learns to speak the local language. And he learns there that each planet has its own tutelary spirit, which is essentially like a guardian angel or archangel that's called an Oyarsa, who rules under the authority of God. Earth, unfortunately, is the central battleground between good and evil in the universe and is ruled by a fallen angel, a dark Oyarsa. So part of what's going on here, many of you are not old enough to remember this, but I am. Uh, Back in the 60s and even in the 50s before that, the fascination with science fiction, outer space, space travel, was primarily fixated on Mars. And Mars was the thing that people talked about. There was a great TV show that I was addicted to as a child that was called My Favorite Martian. And it, um, it just sort of embodied, people were thinking about Mars and that, you know, it's interesting that we went to the moon, but Mars was the thing that captured people's imagination. And Lewis is sort of playing into this by having this first story go to Mars. But I want to take a step back out of the trilogy for a minute and just frame this for you a little bit. Because remember, Lewis was a medievalist. That was his uh, chosen profession. He was a specialist in medieval literature. He won every academic prize that there was to win in the study of medieval literature. He wrote a book that's still the primary text used by graduate students in medieval literature. And he was obsessed with the beauty of the medieval worldview. And the reason he was obsessed by it was that he believed the medieval worldview was a profoundly Christian worldview. And there was the idea that we were under the vault of heaven, under the vault of heaven. And remember in those days, uh, and if you've spent any time in the country, you can appreciate this. Back before the 20th century, for pretty much all of human history, every night there was a spectacular show in the night sky because there was not ambient artificial light. And when you went outside, the stars and the planets were above you. And it was this beautiful, what Lewis called a jeweled array um, of this light and color that was up there. And people were fascinated by the stars. And it's not an accident that navigation on ships was all rooted in measuring angles of stars. Uh, People were familiar with the constellations. And there was also study of astrology, which is not the way we think of astrology. We think of astrology now as like Gene Dixon and horoscopes. That is not the medieval concept of uh, astrology. Astrology was much more like an anthropomorphized astronomy, where they, they would attribute human values and personalities to different things in the heavens. And that's why the constellations have names, like Orion and the Pleiades and all of that. But they, they personified these things, and they believed that there was a great cosmic play that was being enacted in the heavens that was in the language of God, the music of the spheres that was beyond our comprehension, but that we knew that it was profoundly beautiful. And so if you have gone into 
churches in Europe, particularly that are medieval churches, you will notice that very often when you go into the um, altar area of the church, that there's a domed ceiling and it is painted a midnight blue with stars painted on it. And it's a reminder that you are under the vault of heaven. And I want to just give a shout out to the Catholic Cathedral of St. John the Baptist on Broad Street because when they did their last renovation, they painted the top of the entire church um, midnight blue and painted stars on it to reinforce this very important theological idea. St. Philip's is based on this idea. You will notice that although we don't have paint on the ceiling, we have what's called a barrel vault, which was a very difficult way of building when St. Philip's was built. But the reason for that is to remind you that you are under the vault of heaven. The arch and the vault are a symbol of that. The arches down the side are also a symbol that we're under the vault of heaven. And it's no accident that each each arch is surmounted with one of the cherubim, the ones who are always praising God in heaven. So this whole idea of being under the vault of heaven was incredibly important, and the planets and the stars were viewed as things that were under, they were, they were like angels, they were God's messengers, and they were full of beauty and wonder. So the whole thing that Lewis is doing in these stories of playing with planets and space and stars is all tied in with this medieval concept of cosmology and the universe and the beauty and order that there is in the solar system. The fact that it's predictable and ordered and that even ancient man could figure out things like the cycles of the moon and could figure out when stars would appear and all of that because there's order in that creation. So most of us just don't think about any of that anymore because we've just lost that. But understanding these stories, try to keep that in the back of your mind, the sense of awe and wonder about the beauty and majesty and mystery of space and that it's not cold, empty space, but it's space that is full, pulsing with the life that is in the Trinity and is part of the way that God expresses himself. All right, I'll stop preaching about that. So the the next book in the series, so um, what happens in Out of the Silent Planet is that he, uh, Dr. Ransom, manages to get back to Earth. So we don't really hear too much about him, and then all of a sudden when you pick up Paralandra, um, he's back, and he's going to Venus, Venus is uh, Paralandra in the old solar language. And Paralandra, I think, is Lewis's finest creative writing. It is astounding that he could write this book cooped up in Oxford during World War II with blackout curtains on the windows. Paralandra, as he describes this planet, it is this place that is full of wonder. And there's no real fixed land The land on this planet consists mostly of islands that surf on waves as they go around. And on these are trees and different living creatures. And the trees, uh, there are bubble trees that have this amazing fragrance and fruit. It's just such an incredible story. But basically what he does is he tells the story of Adam and Eve 
as if Adam and Eve had been created and the fall never happened. And he imagines what an unfallen humanity would look like. A humanity that could not even imagine what sin was. And it is a beautiful, beautiful story. But then, Weston, the evil physicist, he shows up and he starts trying to ruin Paralandra. And one of the first things he tries to do is go to the woman who is like Eve and convince her that she needs a mirror to understand her beauty. And she argues with him, I don't need to do that. It hasn't been provided. Why would I want something that hasn't been provided? I've been given every good gift that there is. So, but anyway, the story plays out. Weston eventually is overcome by the demons within him, and he becomes this kind of monster called the Unman. Does that sound like abolition of man? The Unman. So he becomes the Unman, and Ransom has to fight and battle him um, in order to save Paralandra and save it from the fate of the Earth. Because the Earth is the silent planet, the one where the guardian angel rebelled against God and against the universe and set himself up in charge against God. And so all of the rest of the universe is trying to figure out what can be done. God has sent, God became a man and sent his son into the earth, into Thalcandra, the silent planet, to save it, but not everyone responded. So there's like sort of this parallel going on with the gospel in these stories. So that brings us to the third story, that hideous strength. And it's not so much about space travel, although there are creatures and presences from the planets and the stars, um, but it has everything to do with the conflict between good and evil and how very important that conflict is. Um, many people think it's the most subtle of the three stories, and it starts with a sordid tale of intra-university politics. It's basically the idea that as academia goes, so goes the culture. Well, in case you haven't noticed, academia in this country is on fire right now. Um, so this might be slightly relevant. So um, there's intra-university politics, there also is some Arthurian legend thrown in here. Um, how many of you ever read about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table? All right, so we've got a little bit of that. We're going to unpack some of that um, later on as we get through this book. Um, and then there is spiritual combat, spiritual warfare. And it's very interesting because the spiritual warfare is described as what is going on in the culture and some of the movements that are going on in the culture that are being organized um, and directed by the head. Well, the, well, I'm not going to tell you that yet. <laughs> yes, so we'll just move along. Um, so in this small university town that's modeled basically on Durham in the north of England, one of the colleges is seduced and then engulfed by the nice the nice, which is sort of affiliated with the government, wants to give the university lots and lots of money for research and wants to fund all of these things for the university. 
Um, but in return for that, it becomes apparent that they want to control what's taught, and they want to control how the university is run, and they want to control who the professors are and who the administration... Does this sound familiar? Um, it's very interesting. I, I think I mentioned before, I think there are only two colleges that I know of in America right now that completely refuse government money, um, Hillsdale College and Grove City College. There may be a few others, but it's just very interesting, some of these parallels. So the NICE, no one can figure out exactly who runs the NICE. No one can figure out exactly what their mission is, and they are very clear to be unclear. Uh, one of the things Lewis plays with here is the robbing language of its meaning. To take words that clearly mean something and then keep talking about them in such a way that it's clear that they don't mean that anymore. So it's just like there are certain places on the internet now where you could go to a scholarly website and pose the question, can men be pregnant? And you will get the answer, yes. I'm not going to say any more about that. Um, but anyway, this, this book has a lot of things like that in it, things that are manifestly impossible, but they just keep saying them over and over again. It's kind of like the old story, The Emperor's New Clothes. Um, so this nice, how could you be against the nice? Um, they're controlled by this pair of people who have been initiated into the secret order, um, which is really under the control of Satan. And so um, they plan, they've hatched this idea that they think they can find Merlin, the great wizard um, from the Arthurian days, they think they can find Merlin and they can revive him and that they, they can convince him to be kind of like a superhero um, with superpowers um, to advance their agenda. So they hope that they can uh, put him to evil use. So in order to find him, they need somebody who has the gift of dreams or prophecy. And they want to find somebody that has that gift and then pervert it um, to be used for the dark side. And so the woman whom they're after that has this gift is named Jane Studdock, and she is the wife of Mark Studdock. Such a fun name to say. Lewis loves sounds of words, so it's not an accident that they're called Studdock. Um, so he is a shallow, young sociologist, and I just want to apologize in advance to any of you that have degrees in sociology, because Lewis is going to rail against sociology all through this book. He's going to say it's not a real science, that it's not helpful, and that it is, in fact, part of the problem of the dumbing down of the human race. So, sorry about that. Um, but Mark is someone who was like Eustace Scrub. And you remember when we talked about Eustace Scrub, we said his problem was that he had what? Yes, he had read all the wrong books. Mark is the example of the kind of person Lewis is talking about who had a progressive education. And that was the word Lewis used back then. It's interesting that it's still accurate today. A progressive education. So he doesn't understand anything about objective value. 
All he is about is naked ambition. He wants to rise in his career in this university, and he will do anything to do that. And he's always talking to his wife, Jane, about what he can do to try to get ahead and how to suck up to the right people and um, how to get invited to this thing or that thing and how great it's going to be. So Mark gets sucked in by promises of power and money and above all, membership in the secret elite clique that controls the nice. Ransom, meanwhile, leads a small eccentric company of friends who are all very different from one another and from lots of different walks of life who, with the aid of the Oyarsa, take on and defeat the nice. That's a little bit of a spoiler. Uh, But the people with Ransom are the church. So, um, I want to try to give you a little bit of the cosmology of deep heaven. Um, Deep heaven is the phrase Lewis uses throughout this trilogy for this vibrant, alive space that's not cold, dark emptiness, but it's full of God and wonder and light. But some of the names are kind of weird. You have to remember, Lewis and Tolkien loved language, and so there's a lot of playing that is above my pay grade uh, with some of these names. So Ransom, in Out of the Silent Planet, gets some information about the cosmology, the framework of deep heaven from the Oyarsa, who's the presiding or archangel of Malachandra. And the name for God in the series is Maleldil. Maleldil. And he rules the field of Arbal, which is the solar system. And it's beautiful and orderly, and the planets are in their courses, and each planet has its own personality. It's beautiful. However, the bent one, I love that phrase, the bent one, who was the Oyarsa of Earth, rebelled against Maladil and all the Eldela of deep heaven. And the Eldela are angels. And in response to this act, the bent one suffered confinement on the Earth where he first inflicted great evil. So he made Earth the silent planet, cut off from the Oyeresu of the other planets. Um, so Thulchandra in this language means silent planet. Maladil tried to reach out to the silent planet and became a man to save the human race. According to the Green Lady, who's Eve on Paralandra, Thulchandra is favored among all of the worlds out of everything in this deep heaven because Maladil came to it to become a man. And the outer planets in the field of Arbal are older. The inner ones newer. The asteroids are called the dancers before the threshold of the great worlds. So um, he says, Earth will remain a silent planet until the end of the great siege of deep heaven against the Oyarsa of the Earth. The siege starts to end when the Oyarsu of the other worlds, all the archangels, descend to Earth at the finale of the trilogy, that hideous strength. But there's still much more to happen until what is predicted in the book of Revelation comes to pass um, when the rule of the bent Eldil will be taken away and uh, that we will have the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth. So it all ties in with the biblical narrative. So the Eldila, you're going to see that word a lot, they are basically angels. They They do like angels. They can be invisible or they can take on a human form. Um, the human characters in the stories run into them in different places, 
Um, they're on different planets. They're on this planet, um, and they are often barely visible as pillars of faint, shifting light. So think about like when you see those beams of like god light, you know, where you see the, sort of the golden beam and there's some dust in there, that that's sort of the way these appear in the stories. And some of these certain powerful Eldela, who are like the archangels, control the course of nature on each of the planets. So the Oyarsa are the ones that are um, leaders. So Oyarsa is just basically a word for leader. And many of them are angels. Um, these would be like the archangels in the scriptures, um, like Michael. Um, Lewis uh, says that this maybe was in, inspired um, out of this book uh, that would be known to medievalists, not to us, um, about the governors of the celestial spheres. So um, this comes from a Greek word uh, that goes all the way back to Hermes and his Asclepius written in 150 BC, which is more than you ever wanted to know. The, the bent one, the Oyarsa of Earth, is Satan, the fallen angel, the one who rebelled against God in his pride. And so um, these angels are described as they can have masculine or feminine characteristics, but they are actually without gender. Um, so the uh, interesting thing is that in a lot of these archangels at different planets correspond to different Greek gods. Part of what Lewis is playing with is the medieval idea that many of the Greek gods were sort of a misperception of angelic beings that were part of the, the cosmology that God had made. So um, this next uh, part uh, is interesting. The Hanau is one way you can say this. There's debate about how this word is pronounced. But it's a word in the old solar language, which, just as an aside, Tolkien gets all the credit for making up languages. And granted, he did do more with that, um, and even creating uh, full grammar books and dialects of Elvish. But Lewis came up with a new language, too, in the space trilogy that's called Old Solar. And it has rules and grammar and all of that. So this Old Solar language, Hanau, uh, means rational animals like humans. And so in the book, the, old sp the guy speaking Old Solar and explaining all this specifies that God is not Hanau. Um, and some other people um, have actually started using this word uh, in uh, academic literature, which is just kind of funny um, because it's a fictional thing that Lewis came up with. Tolkien used it. Um, it has been used just recently by a guy named Thomas White uh, in an academic paper called Is a Dolphin a Person? Uh, and can they be reckoned as hanau, that is, sentient beings at the same level as humans? So you never know where C.S. Lewis is going to show up. So the old solar language uh, is one of the things that is full of meaning. One of the things that Lewis is always trying to get across is that in God's creation, things are full. There is not emptiness in God's creation. That Everything that God made is full. It is multi-layered. And the more that you delve into it, the more there is. And the more wonder there is. And 
if I were a big onion fan, I would use the analogy of an onion, but I'm not a big onion fan, so I'm not going to say that. But if you like onions, you can think about that, that each layer that you tear, there's still more that's better and better. And this is that whole idea you see in the Narnia stories with the refrain of further up and further in, that there's always more, that it's impossible to exhaust the wonder of who God is. And it's sort of the idea that you see in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that the celestial city is a place that is amazing, that is beyond our conception. It's what you see in the revelation of John about the new heaven and the new earth. And Lewis wants us to feel this wonder. And so Old Solar is part of his way of trying to do that. So um, the Old Solar, um, Lewis says in the story that only earth lost this language, and that it was because of the Bent One's influence. And uh, one of the things about it is that it is the great tongue that it was spoken before the fall of man and is spoken beyond the moon. And this is a little quotation from that hideous strength about old solar. It was as if the words spoke themselves from some strong place at a distance, or as if they were not words at all, but present operations of God, the planets, and the pendragon. For this was the language spoken before the fall and beyond the moon. And the meanings were not given to the syllables by chance or skill or long tradition, but truly inherent in them as the shape of the great sun is inherent in the little water drop. This was language herself, as she first sprang at Maladel's bidding out of the molten quicksilver of the first star called Mercury on Earth, but Veritrobia in deep heaven. And it's sort of this, this is tied into that whole idea of the Logos. Remember in John chapter 1, that great prologue that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and nothing was made without him. And that whole idea of logos is what Lewis is talking about here because the Greek word logos doesn't mean just word, like a word we read on a page. It means a creative force. It means something that can call things out of nothing. And that's why um, when you see John using that framework, that's just like Genesis 1, in the beginning God created and he talks about and God said let there be light, and there was light. God speaks things because of his word and the power of his word and how the fullness of his word, it causes things to spring into being. And so that's what Lewis is trying to get at here. So there's some really wonderful stuff in here. So um, I hope that's whetted your appetite a little bit. Um, we're going to move to some practices of hope and wisdom. Uh, and let's say together... Um, And this is so appropriate as we think about the medieval cosmology because they were all about this. So let's say this verse together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And again, this idea of being proactive to choose to think about these things, to think about 
the beauty and wonder that is out there. But we choose to focus on other things because the bent one, if you want to use that name, wants to pull us into thinking from his perspective. So first thing that I would encourage you to do is listen to Gustav Holst's The Planets and reflect on the wonder of God's creation of the night sky. This is a fabulous composition, and it has the added virtue of being one of the things that we know that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien loved. And they would go to London um, to hear particular orchestras play this because they liked it so much. And the planets, it's interesting because it's seven movements um, that are written right around the time of World War I. And in the last movement, there's a chorus. But the wonderful thing about the chorus is very unusual for this time period is the chorus doesn't have words. Um, it's just sound. And it's what it's trying to do is replicate that medieval idea of the music of the spheres, which we're going to talk more about that later. But that's what this whole composition is about, the music of the spheres. And you see um, that these things are related to the astrological character in the medieval cosmology. And so the premiere of this was at Queen's Hall in London. Um, Adrian Bolt, who's one of the great um, conductors of uh, the past hundred years, conducted the premiere. But just listen to the titles that Holt gives these. These are right out of Lewis's playbook about the medieval cosmology. Mars, the bringer of war. Venus, the bringer of peace. Mercury, the winged messenger. Jupiter, the bringer of jalility. Saturn, the bringer of old age. Uranus, the magician. And Neptune, the mystic. And if you're up on your mythology, you'll see that there's quite a correspondence there um, with mythology as well. Uh, if you've never listened to this, you're in for a treat. I would encourage you to find a place where you can turn it up really loud uh, because it's got a lot of dynamics in it and you, you miss that if you don't turn it all the way up. So second, meditate on these verses about the beauty of God's creation in the heavens. We fail to appreciate how much there is in scripture about the beauty of the heavens. And this is just a little sample, but even just meditating on these will change your view about this. So out of the book of Amos, which is an unlikely place, um, Amos is mostly um, prophecy uh, and calling people out for the sin of materialism. But in the middle of that, you get he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. And then Isaiah, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And then this great Job chapter 38, if you've never read that, do yourself a favor, read the whole thing, but just this little bit. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? 
or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And then there's Psalm 8, uh, which is the, we've talked about that one before, uh, about the wonder and beauty of the heavens and what is man that you are mindful of him, that you've made him a little lower than the angels, but crowned him with glory and honor. And then lastly, I would really encourage you, and this is a perfect month to do it because the humidity and the haze are finally gone, go somewhere outdoors. In Charleston, you can do this because of the water. There are many places where you can actually get away from a lot of light and actually see the stars. Go somewhere outdoors where you can see the night sky and intentionally spend some time in prayer praising God for the beauty he has created. And if praise prayers don't come easily to you, I commend this one. This is from Eric Milner-White, who um, we probably know best as the creator of the Lessons and Carols service back in 1918. Um, Listen to this prayer. We magnify thee, O Lord. We bless the excellency of thy name and the great work of thy hands, the manifold vestures of earth and sky and sea, the courses of the stars and light, the songs of the birds, the hues of flowers, the frame and attributes of everything that hath breath, and upholding all thy wisdom, marvelous worthy to be praised, but most that by thy sure promise we now do only taste the glory that shall be revealed when thou, O God, wilt take the power and reign world without end. Amen. So on that note, uh, let's say together our verse. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the glory and wonder, not only of your creation, but of who you are. Lord, we confess to you that we are so preoccupied with the things of this world that we forget to look up, that we forget the vault of heaven, we forget the glory of who you are. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds, uh, that you would fire our love for you. Lord, as we read this book, we pray that you would use it to equip us to walk in this world where there is still beauty, but there's so much darkness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk not as unwise, but as wise, and to keep our eyes fixed on you. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for coming. Next week, do not come to class, because we will not be here. Uh, 
So have a wonderful time of Thanksgiving, and we will come back the week after Thanksgiving on Wednesday, and I would encourage you to try to have read maybe the first three chapters of That Hideous Strength. Unless you're on the beach, don't worry about it. (laughs) Thanks for coming.